reading a series from 1 John, and um, Alan's going to come and read that for us. 1 John, chapter 1, verse 5, to chapter 2, verse 2. Walking in the light. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful, and just, and will forgive us our sins, and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Amen. Thank you, Alan. At the, uh, the prayer meeting on Thursday evening, we were praying for the um, terrible situation in the world uh, at this time. As you know, NATO leaders met last week in Wales, and I think it was described as the most important summit meeting for a decade. And earlier this week, we had the tragic news of the American journalist Stephen Sotov was beheaded by Islamic State. And in their tributes um, to him, his family described uh, him as a person who tried to find good in a world concealed by darkness. Ever since the fall, darkness has hung over the world. Sin has affected human relationships at all levels and in its extreme has led to war and violence. We're told in the Bible that there will always be wars until Christ comes again. May vary in degree and intensity, but humans on their own will never be able to achieve lasting peace. Which is why the message in this passage is so important for us to hear, because the message um, that we just read is that God is light. Have a look at verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. Light is such a powerful image, isn't it? You know, we know the difference the light makes uh, when we are in darkness. 
And you're driving along a, a country lane at night and turn the headlights on full beam. Makes the media different. So you come back home at night and it's uh, dark and you turn the lights on when you come into the house. Or if you're a, a camper and you, uh, you get up in the middle of the night and you turn your torch on, you can see where you're going. But what does John mean here in, in this passage that God is light? What he's saying is light here is an image of perfection, it is purity, it is truth. It's everything that makes God, God. Darkness is, is the opposite. It's imperfection, it's impurity, it is, it, it is lies and distortion of the truth. It's a rejection of God. In short, it is it's sin. So surely you may think, well, the fact that God is light is a good thing. What a great message. Why would not anybody welcome the light coming into the world? Well, if we turn to uh, John, the Gospel uh, of John, briefly, to chapter 3, and verse 19. This is what it says there. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Now that is a big problem. People prefer to follow the ways of the world than the ways of God. They don't want to face up the fact that they are living for themselves. They don't want to think about all the things that uh, they do are selfish and embarrassing uh, and shameful that are displeasing to the one who made them. They don't want to step into the light and have their evil deeds exposed for what they are. And that has been the case ever since Adam and Eve tried to hide from God out of shame for what they did. People have covered up their evil deeds, their fears, their insecurities, the thoughts of their hearts. But you've noticed how often there is something in the news about a cover-up. This week um, it was uh, the situation in Rotherham, the um, accusation of mass. Uh, of cover, of cover up of mass child abuse for fear of being accused of racism, accusation levelled against council officials. Now we might not have huge scandals to cover up in our private lives, but even ourselves, how often do we uh, describe something that's happened, but maybe leave out a few little details which may put us in a slightly more negative light. But the message that God is light is not meant to be a frightening one. He actually wants us to come into the light and enjoy being in his light. Why would we want to do that, you may ask? Well, because the great promise there in verse 7, have a look at that promise. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. As we come into the light, are prepared to have are evil deeds exposed. They are at the same time eradicated, they're washed clean, they're, they're purified. How? By the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is shorthand for what it says in um, verse 2 of chapter 2, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Or technically, the propitiation the sacrifice has turned God's anger away from us, away from our wrongdoing, and has turned it on 
to Jesus. The sacrifice of those results has made us right with God. The sacrifice that we're going to celebrate in the Lord's Supper in just a moment. Jesus' death, his sacrifice on the cross, in our place, allowed us to go free, allowed us to, to stand as innocent before God, stand in the, the spotlight, proud, without needing to shrink into the background. So how do we come into the light? What does it mean to walk in the light? Well, John explains it by describing those, first of all, who are not walking in the light in verse 8. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We're not in the light. So to walk in the light means to acknowledge our sin, to confess our sinfulness, which we're going to do in a moment. The Bible tells us time and time again, doesn't it, that we are all by nature sinful. Romans 3 says there is no one righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that is the error of the world. The world accepts that there exists good and evil. So the world thinks evil is fire. It's those who slaughter women and children, who, who behead innocent journalists. As author Ian Rankin put it, he said, We prefer, prefer to demonize certain people, but even in a world of monsters, but if it prevents us confronting the fact that these people are just like us, the people next door, it lets us off the hook. But if God has a different measure of, of good, isn't he? For him, goodness is perfection, and anything that falls short is imperfection. It needs to be dealt with. And so to walk in the light means to accept that we, by nature, are sinful that we continue to sin and we cannot do anything about it ourselves and so we have to come and ask for God's mercy and his forgiveness and as we are forgiven we are made pure in the sight of God that is where his life shines into our lives and we are considered pure because Christ is in us one of the, uh, the great um, conversion stories of all time is that of Saul um, if you'd like to uh, turn to um, Acts chapter 26 this is uh, Saul on the road to Damascus you think of Damascus today a city of great bloodshed and Paul was, uh, Saul was off to persecute Christians he was the equivalent really in that day of, a, of an IS leader but look at how he describes what happened to him in verse 13 he said I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions we all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? it is hard for you to kick against the goads and I asked who are you Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting the Lord replied now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So we come to the Lord's table to celebrate 
the mercy that God has shown us, the same mercy he showed us all. We say it comes to celebrate the forgiveness that we have been granted. The fact that God has shone his light into our lives. But in the process of doing so, let's remember our own commission, the same as Saul to go out into the world and by the power of the Spirit to, to open eyes, to, to turn people from darkness to light, so that they too may receive forgiveness of sins. We're going to say a prayer of confession together as we come to, to the Lord's table. Let's say together the, the prayer of preparation that many of us will know without the words on the screen. Let's start Almighty God. Let's, let's say this together. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. Be truly and earnestly repent of your sins and are in love and charity with your neighbours and are resolved to lead a good new life following the commandments of God and walking henceforth in his holy ways. Draw near this faith and take this sacrament to your comfort and growth in grace. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but have the light of life. We're going to give thanks for the bread and the wine and uh, Karen's going to come and lead us in a prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can participate in these gifts of bread and wine knowing what you did for us on the cross. And Lord, we thank you that uh, you chose us, you came into this world knowing that you were going to be a sacrifice and um, you did it because of your love for us and that we are very grateful and we thank you that you stretched out your arm to each of us and uh, you did that for us on the cross and we just want to remember that as we eat the bread and drink the wine this evening thank you for that love, thank you for that holiness that allows us to have a relationship with you that we otherwise wouldn't be able to have in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. The Lord, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. We're going to keep the uh, cups of the third to us and then we'll drink together. Drink this in remembrance that Christ died for you and be thankful. Lord, we thank you for this supper that we've had the privilege to take part in. Thank you for the reminder it has been for us of your great mercy towards us. We thank you that it's a, a symbol of hope for the future, that you will come again. That you will make this world right. 
Heavenly Father, time, Lord, we do pray that you would uh, continue to shine your light into this dark world. We've read of the hardness of Saul's heart and how you were able to, to change him. As you think of the hardness of the, the hearts of some of those people who are reading that in the news of the moment, Lord, we do pray that you would change their hearts, you would have mercy on them. That you would uh, make them show love to their neighbours instead of hatred and war. We pray for those, Lord, whose lives are in darkness because of what they're suffering as a result of that war, that violence. Lord, we do pray for Christians in, in those countries that you would protect them, that you would sustain them, that the basic needs they, they need, that you would get them to them. And Lord, we do pray that you would shine your light into their lives, that you would give them hope for the future as they trust in you. Lord, we pray for those whose lives are dark because of illness, whether it's mental or physical. Just take a moment now to, to bring before you some of those we, we may know personally. Lord, those in the darkness of grief, whether because of recent bereavement or the death of a loved one some time ago, which continues to um, cause pain. God, we lift, lift them up to you now. Lord, those in the darkness of loneliness, broken relationships and despair. Lord, we lift them up to you now. And Lord, we lift ourselves up to you and pray that we would go from here tonight in the power of your Spirit to, to let life shine before others that they may see our good deeds and glorify you. And we ask that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Right, this is going to be a bit different. Um, uh, there's no end of English Bible versions. You can easily come up with a hundred different translations in English. It's not of the whole Bible, at least in the New Testament. Um, I've got a bag full uh, here. I'm probably not going to get them out, but there's ones like The Message, um, New Living Translation, um, New International Reader's Version, I think that we had some from that this morning, in case you didn't know. Um, Good News Bible. Um, oh, that's the Greek New Testament, all right. Well, if you want to read that, you can read that as well. So, we're going to start off this look at why we have different versions. As a church, we need to choose one version for the sake of, sake of consistency that we can use together. And as you'll have read in the notice sheet this morning, or if you haven't, um, we'll be replacing the worn out, well used NIV Bibles with new NIV Bibles, which means getting an updated version. The new version was uh, published in 2011. And you will notice differences. And um, rather than these coming as a great shock, and you think, why on earth have they changed it? 
Um, here are some clues as to maybe why we get some differences. We're going to start off this uh, deep uh, and academic subject with a t-shirt. And we're going to translate t-shirt. And um, if this clicker works, we can see that what the t-shirt says, and it's a snoopy kind of proverb, and it says, ce n'est pas grave de gagner ou de perdre, sauf quand on perd. Which I'd like a translation for. Now come on, some of you write French. Okay, Leslie has got it. It's not a disaster if you win or lose. Okay, it's not, a dis it's not a disaster if you win or lose, only if you lose. Okay, anybody wants to give us uh, another one? Come on, be brave. You Okay, it doesn't matter if you win or lose, except when you lose. Okay, um, here are some that I prepared earlier. Um, I wish it's pretty much, okay, how about that? That's pretty much what Neil said, I think. It doesn't matter whether you win or lose, except when you lose. Um, winning or losing isn't important, except when you lose. Or, it isn't serious to win or to lose, except when one loses. Um, now, I don't know what, how you react to that one, but that is actually sort of getting as close as possible to the way the French is expressed. It does sound somewhat awkward and strange, um, but it's a, it's a translation that we would understand. We might react to it, I think, perhaps as being somewhat stilted. So it, it shows you that you can have several legitimate translations of uh, a French expression. French and English are pretty closely related in the whole worldwide scheme of things. Uh, so even there you can see that we have um, quite uh, a number of different ways in which we can express meaning. Incidentally, those are called paraphrases, different ways of saying the thing, the same thing in, uh, in a language. So if there's so many ways of doing it, let's, uh, it'd be worthwhile just taking a step back for a moment and think, does God actually want us to translate his word? Now, scripture is more important than a snoopy t-shirt. And I think, I hope you will all agree that we believe God wants us to have access to his word uh, in a language we understand. Um, but it's worth just teasing that out a moment, because if we accept that, then it brings a whole lot of other things that follow on. We might think, well, actually the words are too holy to translate. That is the strict Islamic view of the Quran. It should not be translated. Uh, better to recite the words in Arabic, even if you haven't got a clue what they mean, you'll get more value from it uh, simply by reciting the very words. The very words themselves in Arabic uh, have the, the holiness that you can't, that means they can't be translated. Another thing to think about, what language did Jesus speak? Interesting, in that reading we had from Paul's account, what, uh, what did the voice speak to him in? Aramaic. Wow. Um, so that, and, and what language did Jesus speak? Jesus almost certainly spoke Aramaic for the most part of his teaching. He would also have spoken Hebrew, arguing in the temple. Um, so actually, how many words of Jesus do you actually have in our Greek Bibles? Do you learn Greek, which is the language of the New Testament? Well, you don't have very many of Jesus' actual words. We're already, even in the original Greek, dealing with a translation of what Jesus said. Um, something to think about. What, what Old Testament scriptures did Jesus quote from? And the New Testament writers, for the most part, quoted from the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Um, um, 
a few centuries uh, before Christ, so there had been, been in existence. So the, the Bible of the New Testament people was already a translation uh, into Greek of the Hebrew scriptures done in the second century before Christ. So all these things, I think, encourage us to believe that having the Word of God in a language uh, which is speaking to us uh, in a way that we understand is something that is very much part of, of the framework of God's communication to us. And I think what we know of God tells us that he wants to speak to us in a way that we understand, not just uh, words that babble, uh, but words that have meaning and speak to us. So I think we, we I hope, accept the need uh, for, for translation. But translation, if we accept that translation is something that we need to have in order to understand what God is saying to us, then there are choices that have to be made. The translator has to make choices. We've all been looking at Psalm 119 these last uh, four or five weeks. And we've been reminded that Psalm 119 uh, is a poem, and it's an acrostic poem, and each, uh, within each stanza, every, every verse of each stanza begins with one letter of the Hebrew alphabet, working its way through the Hebrew alphabet. I've never seen an English translation that attempts uh, to, 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 to reflect that pattern uh, of each line starting with the same letter. You could do it. What would have to give? Probably the meaning would have to give. You'd have to adjust the words you used to begin with the right letter and not quite hit the meaning very properly. So normally, in translation, it's the meaning that takes precedence. The translator is concerned to express the meaning but recognises that in doing that, something is going to have to give. You can't translate everything that's contained in the original. You can't, you can't translate both the form in which it's expressed and the meaning. So, that is partly why we get different translations and meaning usually takes precedence. Okay, languages are different. Perhaps you haven't noticed that, but I think you probably have. Uh, if you've been abroad to, to try and communicate something, uh, you'll realise that languages are different. Greek, the language of the New Testament, doesn't have a word for a or a, no indefinite article. But it has 17 words for the. If you calculate the masculine, feminine, neuter, and then nominative, accusative, da 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 da, you'll find there are 17 different words for the uh, in Greek. In English, we manage with just one. Um, so, so. Um, okay, Kafen, the language that we worked in in Ghana, um, uses the same word for he and for she. So you get, you get Jesus talking to the woman at the well. He said this, she said that, he said this, she said that. Hey, wait a minute, we're getting a bit confused here because it's the same pronoun all the way through. So you have to say maybe Jesus said this, the woman said that, Jesus said that, and the woman said that. Just to keep clear who's speaking what. So according to the framework of the language, uh, you had to uh, adjust the translation accordingly in order to communicate the meaning that was contained in the original and you have to use perhaps different words, different pronouns in order to do that. So I'm just sort of trying to tease out some of the things that probably we know at the back of our minds um, but uh, we need to see that they're relevant in, in translation. The translator has to make a choice. Kassam, as I say, has the same word for he and she but it has three different words for it. Uh, depending on what kind of a 
And it is. So English has the same word for for you, uh, whether it's talking to one person or to many people. Um, one exception to that was one one dialect of English, which I think does distinguish between um, you singular and you plural, and that's in Texas, where they say hi y'all, how y'all doing? And uh, y'all is uh, a version really of a plural you. Um, but it's not even always the same as that. I mean, French has a, a, a two and a vous. Russian rules as to when you use one and when you use the other are extremely complicated as to how well you know the person and uh, it's not just even a matter of one or many. So the choice, even of something as simple as a pronoun uh, for a translator, you can't just say, oh well, uh, the Greek says, uh, uses this one, therefore in this language we'll use that one. You have to take account of the context and what's being talked about. Here's one we had, Jeff used this quotation last Sunday, I think last, uh, last Sunday. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. Did you know there the first you is actually plural, and the second you is singular? So Jesus is saying to Simon, Satan has asked to, to sift you, all my group of disciples, as wheat, but I have prayed for you, singular, Simon, uh, that, um, uh, you know, that uh, you may be be protected. How do you get that across in English? Can, can you do it? Actually, the new NIV, the revised NIV, does say, um, I think Simon Simon Satan has requested to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that. So, it, it, okay, it brings in all, which isn't actually there in the original, but it does at least bring in the idea of the contrast between the, the plural you and the singular you. So you can see how hidden things uh, may be there. The former NIV, the old NIV, um, put it in a footnote, I think. Okay, languages are different. The way they use their pronouns, the way they express their grammar is different. Um, here's another thing. Words don't match. You tend to get the feeling that, you know, okay, you've got one word in one language, what's the equivalent word in another language? But even if you use a dictionary, you'll find, okay, let's, uh, let's take the French word grave that we had. So, n'est pas grave de gagner ou de perdre. It isn't, uh, Leslie, what word did you use? It isn't, it isn't a disaster, okay. Or it, um, it, it isn't serious. Perhaps um, we could, there's a number of different words we could use in English. We have got the word grave in English, um, which sort of has a bit of the same meaning. Uh, we can talk about making a grave mistake, meaning a serious mistake. But if John McEnroe had shouted at the umpire, you cannot be grave, um, rather than you cannot be serious, um, uh, we'd have think, well, maybe he's uh, brought up in a different part of the um, English-speaking world than weird. And even, even simple words like table, you might think the French word table is exactly equivalent to the English word table. After all, the table is something fairly um, uniform, um, but think about um, table of contents in the book, um, or um, uh, a multiplication table in English. We use the word table there, French doesn't. Um, so, so I, I'm, I'm making something of this because uh, you do hear, or surely uh, when we're translating the Greek or the Hebrew, 
Uh, we should be translating one word in the Greek, uh, but always using the same word in English. Surely, that, you know, uh, a really good, accurate translation should do that. I say that's not true. Um, a translation has to look at what context the word is used in. Um, different languages divide uh, the world of meaning up into different ways, and, and words actually have some areas of meaning, not, not just a sort of a point of meaning, but have areas of meaning which may overlap partly with the word in another language. Uh, the area of meaning may overlap, like Venn diagrams, you know what Venn diagrams are, they overlap a bit in the middle, but, but a lot of them cover different areas. Um, think of a colour spectrum, which is actually a continuous spectrum right the way across. In, in English we have about, I think, seven basic colour terms, you think of, you know, red, green, blue, yellow, and so on. In CAFM we just had, we just had three colour terms. The whole spectrum is divided up into three colours, which are sort of um, given the glosses of black, white, and red. Um, so any colour somehow has to be fitted into one of those. We never did find a decent way of expressing the colour blue in CAFM. Um, so it shows you translators uh, have to adjust um, to use words that are there in the English. Again, taking an example from last week or the week before, when we were looking at lead us not into temptation, and Jeff made the point uh, that the Greek word pyrasmos um, actually has an area of meaning which in English is expressed by two different words, temptation and testing. So there's an example where words don't match, and in some contexts, pyrasmos is more appropriately translated by the English word temptation. In other contexts, pyrasmos would be more uh, properly translated by the word testing, and the translator has to think, um, which can I use in this? You can't, in a translation, say temptation slash testing in every context. You've got to choose one or the other. One that's had a lot of, uh, sorry, these are coming up twice, because uh, one I put in Greek characters, but that's obviously got lost. Um, that's why there's two examples. One, one word that's had a lot of um, uh, discussion amongst theologians and translators is the Greek word sarx, which basically means flesh. Um, and it's used a lot by Paul in his letters. Um, but it has a very, it has a number of different, it covers a very wide area of meaning. It can mean human beings. It can literally mean human flesh. Um, it can mean something of a physical nature rather than a spiritual nature. Um, it can, in some contexts that Paul uses it, it very specifically refers to our, our sinful nature. Um, but um, there are uh, very definite needs, um, like uh, Acts chapter 2, um, in those days I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, um, meaning I will pour it out on all human beings, um, or all flesh shall see, um, now does flesh actually see, um, probably not, it's probably better to say all human beings shall see. Um, now, in fact, the, the uh, quite interesting actually, the the newer version of the NIV actually translates sarks as flesh more often uh, than the older version. I'm not sure that's always for the better, but it, it actually does talk about flesh and blood. Um, uh, 
where, where uh, Jesus says to Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Um, uh, when, when Jesus says, when Peter says to Jesus, you are the Messiah. Um, I think it's not, it's um, not revealed to you by human uh, means, um, but I think the new NIV goes back to using flesh and blood. Okay, so Sarks is one um, which, uh, as I say, has caused quite a lot of discussion. Um, and, and has to be translated in different ways. Here's, here's another one, Adelphoi, um, which um, basically means brothers, um, but it's used in the sense very often of fellow believers, and certainly in, in a number of cases where Paul, um, in, at the end of the letter, says, greet the Adelphoi for me, and he goes on then to list a number of people included in the Adelphoi. There are several women there, as well as men. So Adelphoi obviously has a wider um, remit, a, w- a wider envelope than simply male, um, fellow male believers. Um, it refers to the body of believers, fellow believers, uh, both men and women. So um, it's difficult to find a good term in English actually that covers that. Do, do we have a word in English that covers both brothers and sisters? Siblings, wow. Dear, dear siblings. Um, okay, saints would be taking, yeah, would be taking another um, slant on the people that it's referring to. Siblings probably doesn't work uh, because it's somehow in the wrong, it's too legal or something. I don't, I don't know, um, it, it doesn't quite capture, although technically it, it has the same denotational meaning, it has the same sort of strict meaning as the who who is included within that term, it doesn't somehow cover uh, what you would want um, in terms of referring to fellow believers, um, siblings in the Lord. Mm, well, maybe, <laughs> um, but it doesn't quite work. Um, I've noticed increasingly nowadays um, the, the term guys, hey guys, or thank you guys, that includes both men and women. Um, now, this may depend very much what generation or age group you're in. Uh, um, for me, I think guys, and I, and I think, no, oh, come on, some of them are dolls, or, or, um, or, or gals, or something. Um, but guys, again, it, it refers to um, men and women, although essentially it is a male word. Um, it, it can include both men and women. And that, I think, is very similar to what we have with Adelphoi. So you will find that like the New Living Translation, where Paul uses Adelphoi, New Living Translation will say brothers and sisters, and you'll find the revised version of the NIV also uses brothers and sisters at that point. Um, and it does put a footnote to say this is Adelphoi. Um, okay, so there's one to uh, look at. Okay, words reflect culture, we need to zip along a bit. Um, Dulos, maybe slave, maybe servant, but uh, within the, within the Roman um, culture of the New Testament, slaves were well looked after, rather than, for the most part, rather than badly treated. So, um, you'll find that the new version of the NIV often uses Messiah to translate Christ. So, Peter says to Jesus, you are the Messiah, rather than you are the Christ. I think, I, I do think that gives us more the flavour, actually, of what, what he's saying, the, the weight of what he's saying. Okay, words change over time. Did Paul get stoned? 
Um, read 2 Corinthians 11.25 and see whether Paul got stoned. He said he did. Um, and, and another one which has is, which is brought a lot of discussion, you know, does man imply exclusively male? Um, you know, we've had all this move from chairman to chairperson and postman to post something or other. Um, and, and it's sort of a modern trend um, and the use of words changes. Um, the old NIV and the ESV, what, this is uh, from um, Psalm 8, I think. Yeah, Psalm 8. Um, what is man that you're mindful of him? The new NIV says, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? I'm not too sure about that one. Um, new Living Translation, which I quite like actually, what are mere mortals that you should think about them? And of course it goes on in the Son of Man. Um, so, can we have a quick vote on that? Who, who, um, one, two, and three. Okay, who likes the top one best? Right. Who likes the middle one best? Yeah, not like sports. Um, who likes the last one best? Yeah. Yes. Okay, yes. Fairly evenly divided between the first and the last, and not too much from the middle. But I'm afraid you're going to have to put up on the middle one. Um, okay, I, I'm going to skip over these, because uh, um, there's a lot of other acts we've been talking about just just how do we express the meaning um, in another language because the meaning takes precedence with a whole lot of other things tied up in language that the translator has to take care of we talk about white and we don't talk about white and black we talk about black and white uh, we talk about going out to get fish and chips don't talk out about going out to get chips and fish uh, you'd understand me but you'd know English wasn't my own language level of formality um, new NIV has tended to drop O in front of O Lord just to say Lord. Um, we don't even address the Queen as O Queen. Um, so it does still use O Lord in some places. Um, tricky bits, there are, there are plays on words which usually get lost in translation. Um, sometimes they can be kept. 2 Thessalonians 3.11 in the NIV has, um, they are not busy, but busy bodies. And, and the Greek words, have um, a, a similar kind of sort of play on, on words. And it's not very often you can actually capture that in another language. So there's one successful example. We talked about Psalm 119, expressing it as a, an acrostic. You get irony um, when, when God is um, at the end of Job. Uh, God is saying to Job, you know, you're, you're a little bit misguided. Were you there when I put the world together? Oh yeah, sure you were there. Yeah, you're so old, I'd forgotten. Um, and it's, it's ironic because you're sort of saying the opposite actually of what is meant. Again, you have to look. Okay, we're going to finish just by looking at um, idioms. Um, I wonder if your loins are filled with anguish this evening, wondering when I'm going to finish. Um, ES, ESV uses this expression. I'm not even sure where my loins are, and I don't actually know when uh, when they'd be in anguish. Um, uh, to me, that's slightly unfortunate. I think the new NIV said something like your stomach no, no, there's another translation says your your stomach churns. Which we use parts of the parts of the body to express emotions very often, but different languages use different parts of the body to express their emotions. And the A if you're used to the A V King James version, you'll have read of bowels of compassion. Um, well, I don't think anybody talks that way nowadays. If, even if they didn't know those days. 
Um, okay, here's one. Here's a question to finish with. If you're standing in someone's way, are you helping them or are you hindering them? You're hindering them. So, why does Psalm 1 tell us not to stand in the way of sinners? <laughs> Blessed is the man who walks not, and who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. That's the old NIV. So it says, well, blessed if we don't stand in the way of sinners, in other words, we should let them get on with it. Um, and it always struck me as being rather an unfortunate uh, um, mix of idioms uh, there. Well, the new NIV does actually deal with that. Blessed is the, now notice the differences here between the old NIV on the left and the new NIV in the middle. Both, it says, this is not just talking about men, this is talking about people, men and women. So it goes to a more general phrase, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take, which I think removes the problem with the English idiom, or sit in the company of mockers rather than sitting in the seat of mockers. Um, ESV is fairly similar to the old NIV, that blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. That's a direct violation of English grammar. I mean, we don't say he walks not, we say he doesn't walk. Um, so not, I can't actually for life me think why they did it that way. Because even in Hebrew, the not comes in front of the walk. So. Um, all right. Um, okay, so there's, there's sort of a, um, how the new NIV... So when you see things in the new NIV, um, think about, well, why do they do it that way? I wonder. And, and think about what it means. Word-for-word -word translation is a myth. It can't be done, not even between French and English, let alone, uh, let alone Greek and Hebrew and English. Um, <clears throat> all translations have shortcomings. Translators have to make choices. They have to decide whether to major on this or to major on that. Um, <clears throat> so, don't expect to get a perfect translation. It's very easy to pick holes in translations. Um, think about it, um, no translation is perfect and you can find faults with all of them. Um, the best version is one that you use. Um, no good having a perfect version if it's sitting on your shelf and you're not opening it. Um, use one you use and you can relate to and, it, and, and God speaks to you through it. But do you really understand it? If you've got used to a, to a particular form of words, the words tend to sort of flow and you're familiar with them and you actually don't stop and think, actually, what's this saying? So it's actually an advantage, I think, to get familiar with at least two English versions. Um, and then you can stop and think, oh, does it really say that? Let me just look into that. Um, because that sounds a bit strange to me. It sounds a bit different. That's not the way I've always heard it or said it. Um, so, those are what I feel, um, and I, I trust that that's been a help, there's, the, you know, there's a whole lot more uh, that could be said, but um, we need to treasure the Word of God, we need to see it for what it is, we need to realise that you know, we are working with translations, we are dependent on translations, um, but let's use those as an avenue in uh, to God's message. Uh, that he wants to share with us. We're going to close with um, a song which is from Heaven You Came, Help Your Faith. It's not actually got anything to do with the Word of God except that Jesus 
as the word of God the eternal word of God made flesh if you like made man made human being um, is just the way that shows how far God goes in order to bring his word to us to bring his message to bring his salvation to us sending his son uh, in human form so let's stand and sing this as we, uh, as we close Father God, we thank you for the reminder that we've had this evening as we've met around your table and shared in the bread and the wine that remind us that Jesus, your Son, left heaven, came to earth and went all the way to the cross for us. And we thank you uh, that that's a measure of how much you love us and how much you want to reveal yourself uh, to us. And we thank you for your word. Thank you that we do have the luxury of uh, so many versions in English. Father, we pray, help us to use your word wisely and to treasure it uh, in our hearts because in drawing near to your word, we draw near to you and we pray that you would reveal yourself to us afresh as we dig into the treasures of your scriptures. Let's uh, share together in the grace. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.